I think we should give Dustin and the worship team a big, big hand for leading us. Thanks so much, worship team. We uh, really, really, really appreciate uh, just your uh, ministry of leading us to focus on our Savior. So good to uh, see all of you here today. Hope you uh, have had a good week. We're going to uh, continue to move ahead in our series out of the book of Daniel. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 4 today, and chapter 4 is very interesting, uh, not the least of which is it's primarily a letter from King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the king that encountered in chapters 1 through 3 as he uh, appeared to uh, be opposing the work of God, and now we're going to see that uh, things have uh, turned a little bit, and we're going to uh, take a look and see why. So what I want to do is begin with the first three verses of Daniel chapter 4. We'll read this together, and then I'm going to pray. And then we'll look at the rest of the chapter and see how it relates to you and to me. Uh, This is God's word to us. Let's pay close attention. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Wow, what a change in perspective. We'll see why this happened. Let's uh, bow together in prayer. Uh, Father, we want to come before you today and just rest in you. And Lord, we thank you that what we just sang about how great you are and what we've just heard in these words from Daniel chapter 4 about how great is your dominion and your kingdom is eternal, we want to thank you and rest in that because that's true and that's foundational. Father, some of us in here may have had a hard week, a challenging week, a frightful week, and so we pray that we would rest in your grace and your sovereignty. Lord, we also think about what's going on around the world today. We think of people in Europe and Britain, and there's probably lots of people that are nervous and scared, and we pray for your providential grace on them. We pray for leaders around the world, that they would lead well, that they would seek peace. Lord, that you would superintend that. We think of our own country today, Lord. We're in the middle of an election, and we pray for wisdom and grace. And I pray for the people of God in particular that uh, we would look to you because politics are important, but you are ultimate, and so is your kingdom. Lord, we continue to pray for the work of the gospel around the world, in our own country, and in our own community. Thanks so much for the churches in Littleton. May you bless each and every one of them, even right now this morning. Lord, may you bless Deer Creek Church. It's a strategic church with great people. May your hand of grace continue to be upon it, its staff, its leadership, and its congregation. Father, we're going to look at uh, your word today. So we pray that by your spirit, you would now take the time to bless us by instructing us and enlightening our minds and touching our hearts so that you can be glorified and we can be conformed more and more and more to the image of Jesus, our great Savior and God. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, as I'm sure that uh, many, if not all of you know, 
former heavyweight champion, Muhammad Ali, uh, just died a few weeks ago. Uh, Prior to his death and at his memorial service, uh, hundreds and hundreds of people praised Ali for his courage and his generosity and his concern for others, and rightly so. Uh, But years ago, when Ali was in the very prime of his career as heavyweight champion of the world, uh, he oftentimes had an extremely high view of himself and his abilities. Uh, On one occasion, Ali was sitting on an airplane, and the airplane was waiting to taxi to take off. And the flight attendant came by, and she saw that Ali had not yet fastened his seatbelt. And she said, Mr. Ali, would you please fasten your seatbelt? And he looked up at her, and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelts. To which the flight attendant replied, Superman don't need no airplane either. (laughs) Ali fastened his seatbelt. He was always entertaining, always engaging, always gregarious, and he was beloved by millions, and rightly so. But on that particular occasion, in that particular episode, he exemplified a quality that none of us like, and yet it's a quality that at times we're probably all guilty of. It's a trait that some cultures have exemplified. It's a It's a quality that oftentimes even American society seems to promote. But it's a quality that Christian teachers in the past have labeled as one of the worst, if not the worst sins, because it is a stench in the nostrils of God. It's the sin of pride. Listen to what C.S. Lewis, once again, in his great book, Mere Christianity, says about this. He says, the Christians are right. It's pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Oh, other vices may sometimes bring people together. You might find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between person and person, but enmity between humans and God. I think Lewis is simply reflecting biblical teaching on the subject of pride. Uh, Let's take just a moment here to look at a few verses and see what the Scripture says about this. Uh, Psalm 101, verse 5. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, him I won't endure. Uh, Proverbs 16, 5. The Lord detests, notice that, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Uh, James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And actually, James 4, verse 6, that's a statement, an idea that is repeated over and over and over again in a number of places throughout the Scripture. God hates pride. You know, I've been in church world and seminary world now for a long, long, long time. And over the years as a pastor and as a professor, I've met with all kinds of people 
And I've talked through issues of anger and depression and fear and sexual addiction and relational breakdown and drug abuse and divorce. No one has ever, ever come to me and said, would you help me overcome my sin of pride? You know, I've seen people disciplined in church for sexual misconduct. I've seen people disciplined in church for financial misconduct. I've seen people disciplined in church or even at Denver Seminary for other kinds of misbehavior. But I've never, ever, ever seen anybody disciplined for possessing a proud spirit. And yet when we come to the scripture, what we see is the writers of the Bible speak against pride in a very, very heavy tone. They never, ever deal with it in a casual way. They're very, very intentional about communicating how horrible pride is. Because pride is deadly to our relationship with God. And it destroys our relationships with other people. That's why God makes such a big deal about it. Now, my goal this morning is pretty straightforward. It's to help me and help you. All of us together, declare war on pride by cultivating humility in our lives. After all, the Lord Jesus is the one who said, those who exalt themselves, those who are proud will be humbled, but those who humble themselves be exalted. Well, that raises a couple of questions. What exactly is this thing we call humility? What's it look like to be a humble person? Well, I've done a little bit of research on this, so let me share with you a definition. I think we could define humility this way. Uh, Humility is the eager, and I want to stress that. It's the eager willingness. It comes from our heart to use our power and our resources to serve other people. In other words, it's not about us. It's about helping and serving other people people. If I could uh, use kind of a, what I would call a flip side illustration of this. Years and years ago, back in the 1930s, there was a black man and he was sitting on the back of a bus and the bus stopped and some young toughs got on the bus, three of them. And they went to the back of the bus and they saw this young black guy sitting there and they started to go up to him and they started to hassle him and push on him and insult him. And they were trying to pick a fight with him. They figured it was three of them, one of him, it was easy. And the guy didn't say anything. And finally, after a couple of minutes of this, he just stood up. And when he stood up, he was big. He was like way big, much bigger than they had thought. And he looked down on them, and he simply gave them a card. And the card said, Joe Lewis, boxer. Well, if you know anything about the history of boxing, Joe Lewis was the heavyweight champion in the world through most of the 1930s on into the 40s. It was said of him that he could knock out a horse with one punch. All Joe Lewis did there was actually, believe it or not, serve these young toughs by restraining his power, using his resources to help them realize, you know, things aren't always like you think. Uh, Friends, I want to be really, really, really clear about this. Humility is not, it's not convincing ourselves or anyone else that we're unattractive or we're incompetent or we're unintelligent. That is not humility. It's not about poor self-esteem. It's not about trying to make ourselves nothing. Humility is this really, really important quality of character. 
where over time, by the grace of God, we cease being preoccupied with ourselves and what's going on with us, and instead we begin to focus our time, our energy, our attention, and our resources on serving God and serving others. And that takes us to the story of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Now, as we've seen over the last three weeks in Daniel 1, 2, and 3, it's really, really obvious that God had gifted Nebuchadnezzar with a tremendous amount of abilities, some genuine leadership gifts, some outstanding intelligence. But instead of seeing these gifts as something that should be used to promote God's glory and help the people of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar reveled in being master over everything that he could survey in his domain. He thought that life was all about him and what he wanted to do and what he wanted to accomplish. And I think we need to be fair here and give credit where credit is due. He accomplished a great deal. With no machinery, using only human labor, he made the most impressive city in the ancient world. There were double walls that went around the entire city for 56 miles. On the eastern end of the city and on the western end of the city, the main gate on each side was made of pure bronze. And it was said that when the sun came up in the morning, if you were on that side of the city, it looked like the gates were on fire. And in the evening, if you were on the west side of the city and the sun set, it looked like the gates were on fire. Inside the city of Babylon, there were 25 avenues running north and south and 25 avenues crisscrossing them, running east and west. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, in the very center of the city, Nebuchadnezzar built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which were described as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Writing about a hundred years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, the great Greek historian Herodotus said this, And this is after Babylon had been conquered by the Persians. Here's what he said. In addition to its size, Babylon surpasses in splendor any other city in the known world. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar were around today, I think he'd be the kind of person that people in our culture generally look up to. I think he'd be interviewed on Good Morning Babylon. I think we'd go to him and ask him to do a seminar or write a book on how to achieve great success. He'd probably create his own reality shows, Babylonian Idol, The Housewives of Suburban Babylon. Now, friends, once again, I want to stress this. Hear me well. It is not wrong to achieve. It's not wrong to do things well. That's not wrong at all. God puts that in us. But what God wants us to realize, he wants me to realize this and he wants you to realize this. He's the central person in the universe. And he wants us to do things to glorify him and recognize that there are other people around us who can be helped by what we can contribute to their lives. Now, Nebuchadnezzar recognized neither of those. And so in the beginning of Daniel chapter 4, God sends him a warning about how his approach to life was being based on pride. It was all about him. And that if he did not repent, it would all come crashing down. Let's move ahead in the story and see exactly what happens here. 
Uh, this is verses 4 and following. Nebuchadnezzar once again is writing this, and he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And yeah, you could see why. I had a dream that made me afraid. Ah, as I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel, who will be the voice of God here, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He's called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Well, what happens is Nebuchadnezzar relates his dream to Daniel, and he says, Daniel, basically what I I had was I had this dream of this, this huge, huge tree, and it was beautiful, and it was fabulous, and it was awesome. And all the birds found their nest there, and all the animals of the field nested there, and it provided safety and security for everything. But then something happened, and he goes on and says this, In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, A messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim it of its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass over for him. So Nebuchadnezzar gives Daniel this dream, and he tells him kind of, This is what I saw. Will you interpret it for me? Now, what happens in the rest of the story is, as I said, Daniel is simply the voice of God to Nebuchadnezzar here. And what God is going to do with King Nebuchadnezzar is he is going to instruct him in the school of humility. And in the school of humility, according to Daniel chapter 4, there are three classes that Nebuchadnezzar is going to have to go through. Each of the three classes build the curriculum in the school of humility. So what I want us to do is collectively together walk through each one of these classes and see what happens to Nebuchadnezzar and see how they might relate to us. The first class in the school of humility is what we might call learning to listen to God. Now, after Daniel hears this dream from the king, Daniel realizes... This is a dream of judgment against the king. And so he's, he's afraid to tell Nebuchadnezzar that. But I want to give Nebuchadnezzar credit here. Look what he tells Daniel in verse 19. Then Daniel also called Belteshazzar was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. He knows this is a dream of judgment against the king. So the king said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies... And it's mean to your adversaries. And Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, just go ahead. Tell me the dream. So Daniel does. Look what he says here. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge 
that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command is to leave the stump of the tree with its root. That means that your kingdom will be restored to you. Notice this. When you acknowledge that heaven rules. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's not going to act, as we'll see, on what Daniel says here. But, 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 and this is the point I want us to get. At least at this point, at least at this point, he's willing to let Daniel give him the interpretation. He's willing to at least listen to the word of God coming to him. And I want us to pause here and notice something that I think is really, really important at this point in the text because it shows us how God generally deals with us. In my opinion, the best commentary, or certainly one of the best commentaries on the book of Daniel, was written years ago by a scholar named Ronald Wallace. And here's what he says. He says that when God deals with us, he always comes to us first with the gentle voice of reason. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come, let us reason together. Now, I think we need to think about this. The fact that Almighty God who is perfect and sovereign and holy, almighty God in his mercy, the fact that he would be willing to reason with stubborn, willful, proud creatures like men and women and children, that's just a testimony to his grace. I think Wallace is right, and I think we see this here in this first class in the school of humility. God wants us, first of all, to listen to him, to pay attention to what he's saying and then act on that. A few years back, there was a very well-known politician who was out night after night after night, and he came home one day, and his little boy said to him, Daddy, when you come home tonight, will you wake me up? And the dad said, Nah, it's going to be too late, son. And the little guy begged, Daddy, please, please, when you come home, will you come into my bedroom and hold me so that I, so that I know that you're at home and I know you're here? And the politician later said that at that moment he he knew there was a voice inside of him speaking to him, telling him to quit his job lest it ruin his family. And the next day he did. He quit his job. Friends, I think God's speaking to me this morning and I think he's speaking to all of you. And here's the question. Are we listening to him? Some of you in here may have had a conversation with a friend or friends over the last few weeks or the last few months, and these are people, or this is a person who knows you. They care about you. They love you. And they've tried, in the love of God, in the grace of Christ, they've tried to tell you the truth and say, if you go down this road, if you make these decisions, you will end up driving your life right into a ditch. Are you willing to listen to them? And act on what they're saying. Some of you here, maybe in the last few months, maybe in the last year, you've had an experience or experiences. And in the middle of the experience, you knew intuitively in some way that God was speaking to you. He was reaching out to you. He was calling you to listen to him and do what he's encouraging you to do. Or maybe over the last few weeks or the last few months... The Lord has been speaking to you directly in some ways through his word. 
I mean, the Word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's telling you to change some things by the grace of God, or repent of some sin, or get committed in some way. Friends, the Lord is calling us to be people of humility. And the very first class in the school of humility is learning to listen to Him. So let me ask us this. How are we all doing today in the first class in this curriculum? Are we learning to listen to the Lord and then take the appropriate action? That's the first class. The second class in the school of humility, and we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar now enter this, is learning to look to God. Do what he tells us to do. Now, if I might use this analogy, I would suggest that moving from the first class, learning to listen, to the second class, learning to look to God, is somewhat similar, if you've ever done mathematics, of moving from algebra to calculus. You know, if you do the algebra really, really well, then going to calculus is not that big of a deal. But if you've ever done this and you, you were in algebra and you didn't do too well and they tried, to, they tried to push you ahead to calculus, it was very, very difficult. It was really painful. Well, that's, that's what happens here with Nebuchadnezzar. God is now putting him into the second class, which is learning to look to God, but Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to do that. God gives him a whole year. He said, Nebuchadnezzar... I'm telling you, you need to repent of your sin of pride. And he gives him a whole year. And he doesn't. He just keeps going on his self-centered way of life. He's still self-focused. Look at what happens next. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, he said, is this not the great, the great Babylon I built as the royal residence by, now note what he says here, by my mighty power, and for the glory of my majesty. Oh, he, he heard the word. I want to give him credit there. He listened to it. But now the Lord's saying, you've got to look to me. And he's saying, eh, I don't want to do that. I'm king. I'm awesome. I'm in control. This is Babylon. I made it. And look what happens next. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately. Oh, let me back up here. Immediately, what was said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Nebuchadnezzar struck down here with a disease that's medically defined called lycanthropy. It's where an individual comes to believe and then behave in a way that they live like an animal. He's struck down with this disease. God is disciplining him here. And the reason God's disciplining him here, he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you did okay in the first class. You listened to me, but you wouldn't proceed into the second class, which is to look to me. And as a result of that, I'm going to discipline you until you learn to notice me, because I'm God and you are not. 
You're just being proud and willful and stubborn. (laughs) Those of you in here who are parents, you get this. You get this because you love your kids. You care about them. You sacrifice for them. You want them to pay attention to you. You want them to do what you're asking them to do. But you know this sometimes, sometimes. They can be really, really stubborn. And so what you have to do is move from plan A, which is trying to dialogue with them, trying to reason with them. You have to move to plan B, which is you have to discipline them. It's the only way to get their attention. Uh, Chan Gailey, who was uh, the former coach of the Buffalo Bills years ago, uh, shared about how he learned this the hard way. At the time, he was the head football coach for Alabama's Troy State, and it was a Division II school, and they were playing for the national championship. And he was really, really pumped up. And the week before the big game, he was getting ready to head to the practice field when his administrative assistant said, Coach, there's a phone call for you. And he said, take a message. I've got to get to practice. And the administrative assistant said, Coach, it's Sports Illustrated. And Gailey turned around and he said, I'll be right there. So as he made his way into the building, he started to think about, oh, this is going to be great. It's going to be a great article. And then he started to process and he said, you know, they're, they're going to want to do two or three pages on our season and how good we've done. And he said, you know, but I don't think two or three pages is, is going to do it. They're going to need more space because we've had a great season and a lot of good things have happened. And then he started to think, you know what, I'll, I'll bet you they're going to want to put me on the cover. And he started the process. He said, should I go for the action shot when I'm on the field or should I just pose with my players or what? And so he came into the room and he picked up the phone and he said, hello. And the person said, is this Chan Gailey? And he said, yes, it is. And they said, this is Sports Illustrated. We're calling to let you know that your subscriptions run out. Are you interested in renewing? (laughs) And Gailey said, he learned, either you're humble or you'll be humbled. If I could quote C.S. Lewis in another venue, he once said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in the normal events of life, and he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to a deaf and dying world. Uh, Friends, the Lord because he's God and because he has made us, wants us to be humble people, humble creatures, humble servants. And so he puts us in this class called listening to him, and then he moves us in the class to looking to him, and if we don't, he'll use discipline to teach us that. Because he wants us to look to him, because he's God and we're not. That's what he did with King Nebuchadnezzar, and look what happens here, it works. At the end of that time, and we don't know whether it was seven months or seven years, we just don't know. Nobody knows for sure. But at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. Uh, Let's not misunderstand what Nebuchadnezzar is saying here. He's not just saying, hey, I looked up into the sky and it was all okay. No, it's saying that when he finally looked to God, he realized 
God is God and I'm not. And he saw himself in proper perspective then. God is the one who's given me all of this stuff. God's given me all my abilities and I need to glorify and honor him. And I need to use these to help other people. I've been a proud, proud king. I've been a proud creature and he sets that aside. And consequently, his sanity was restored. Friends, God wants us to listen to him. That's the first class. God wants us to look to him and place him at the very center of life. And then there's a third class that he wants us to enter into. And that is what I would call, if it's listening and looking, this is leveraging. God wants us to leverage our resources to serve other people, not just ourselves. Let's look at Daniel 4.27. This is right at the end of when Daniel is first speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he's the voice of God here. Look what he says here. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. I'm speaking on behalf of God to you, Nebuchadnezzar. Renounce your sins by doing what's right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. I would suggest to you that in some ways this is the most important verse in this story. It's certainly the most amazing verse in this entire narrative. One writer defined courage as saying the last 10% to someone. And given Nebuchadnezzar's power as king of Babylon, Daniel shows unbelievable courage here. I mean, he's not being spiritually superior. He's just giving it to him with breathtaking candor. Daniel's doing some serious meddling here with the king of Babylon. He's saying, king, do justice, redistribute your resources, be kind to the poor and the oppressed. Daniel's messing here with all the resources and all the stuff that's going into building Babylon. He's critiquing all this construction and how walls and temples and and buildings are being constructed, but people are being... People are being used like tools and objects, and they're getting wounded and killed in the process. Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar, oh, you need to listen to God. You need to look to God. But, king, you have lots and lots and lots of resources. You need to leverage those to help people in need. See, humble people, biblically speaking, always, 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 always see themselves as servants of the king and servants of others, and they leverage their resources to help those in need. Need. About 30 years before the episode of Daniel 4 took place, the prophet Jeremiah said this to the very last king of Judah. Look what he said here. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Do you need more stuff? Is that what makes you powerful? Did not your father, who was King Josiah, the last of the good kings of Judah, did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy. Is that not what it means to know me? Notice that, friends, the poor, the needy. Humble people listen to God and they look to God and they leverage their resources to the poor and the needy because that's what God calls them to do. About six years ago, Melanie and I went on vacation to Washington, D.C. 
And I think it's my favorite city apart from Denver. And we got there and we were just having a great, great time. And I think it was the third day we were there. Melanie had discovered this new uh, museum and it's called the Newseum. And it's all about news. And it's absolutely great. If you've been there, you know how cool it is. And, and you go on the outside of the building and, and on the outside of the building, they have all these flags from all around the world. And then you go in and they have all these different exhibits. And it's just amazing. Like you go in and immediately to your left, they have this huge exhibit about sports from Sports Illustrated and the wide world of sports. And it's great. And then you can go over here to this side and they have an exhibit on the Berlin Wall, and they have pieces of the Berlin Wall there, and you, you can touch them, and they have, they have exhibits about that. And then you, you go over here to the back side of the museum, and they have this history of journalism. And they take you clear back to the early modern period, and they talk about how journalism got started. And then there's this exhibit over here, and it's very moving. It's about 9-11, and they have, they have pieces of some of the buildings that fell, and they have recordings that are very moving. And then they have newspapers from all around the world from 9-12 the day after it, what they were reporting. But if you go to the back of the museum downstairs in the far corner, you come to the Pulitzer Prize pictures. These are pictures that were published over time that won Pulitzer Prizes. And you go in there, not all of them are melancholy or distressing or sad, but many, many of them are. Well, I was out here looking at some, and Melanie was over in the corner, and I walked over to her, and the picture that was in front of her was this picture, and it just wrecked us both. Uh, This picture was taken back in the 90s by a man named Kevin Carter, and as you can see, it's a picture of a little Sudanese girl, and she's starving to death, just waiting, just waiting for the vulture to devour her. And he took this picture, and he wanted to go save her, and he was told, you cannot cross this international line. If you cross that line, you will be arrested and imprisoned. And he, and he, he didn't do it, and he left, and he came home, and they... They published the picture, and he won a Pulitzer Prize, but he had so much guilt from that, he eventually committed suicide. And Melanie and I are there, and seriously, we're just wrecked. And She says to me, why why does God allow stuff like this? And I said, honey, I I don't know. I, I don't know. I guess maybe, maybe, maybe this is one reason why Jesus wants us to feed the poor. And she says, well, when we get home, we've got to adopt a couple more kids through Compassion International. I said, honey, we can't feed them all. And she said, no, but we can feed some more. And she was absolutely right. She was absolutely right. Uh, Friends, biblically speaking, and we're biblical Christians, what we need to understand is how God sees a country, how God sees a county, how God sees a community, how God sees a church, how God sees any individual person in many, many, many ways depends on how they see and then treat the poor and the needy. And that's because people who are biblically humble, they listen to God, and then they look to God because they realize He's the sovereign Savior, and then they leverage what they've been given to help other people out. You know the reason they do that? It's because they have really, really good theology. They realize that that's what God does because God's the most humble person in the universe. 
You know, I've got to be honest with you. I've been in church world a long time now. I didn't grow up in church world, but I've been in church world a long time now. And I can't tell you the number of times over the last 40 plus years I've heard different preachers and teachers say, well, nobody can be proud except God because he's God. That is wrong, friends. That is exactly wrong. The greatest expression of humility in the universe is practiced at the very center of the blessed trinity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is evidenced by the fact that the Father sent the Son to be incarnate and die on that cross for our sins and then rise from the dead to give us the promise of eternal life. And then He gives His Holy Spirit to broken and frail creatures like you and me. Friends, please please know this. God, God is not threatened by high achievers or ambitious people or people who really want to make an impact and see their lives accomplish something. He's not threatened by that at all. He's gifted us and called us to go and do that. But he is opposed to pride because pride is opposed to him and pride ruins relationships with other people. And God is capable at any time of shutting down any person, any church, any city, any political party, any school, any country, any ruler that he deems proud. So today, let's practice what Nebuchadnezzar learned in Daniel 4. Let's walk through the school of humility. Let's listen to God. Let's look to God And then let's leverage our resources on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ to help those in need. Let's be people that God is extremely proud of because we're trying to be just like he is, people who are humble in heart. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to have our team come up and lead us in worship again. Father, we uh, bow before you today once again as our sovereign Savior. And wherever we're at today, Lord, we just pray that uh, we would uh, come close to you, walk with you, be filled with your grace and your love. Thank you again for this church and this day in your name. Amen. Let's uh, have a benediction. Would you take somebody by the hand next to you, and we'll uh, have some Christian community here. Father, your grace is enough for us. Help us to just revel in that look to you. Thank you so much for this day we've had to worship you. Watch over us, be with us, care for us, provide for us. Help us to glorify you and send us out of here filled with the love of Jesus to share with our families, our friends, our neighbors, wherever you take us. We ask this in your name, Lord, and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.